Good morning. Welcome to chapel. Uh, can you guys smell that? Love is in the air. Valentine's Day. Uh, the chemistry club, get it, chemistry, uh, is doing a fundraiser this week where they're going to be selling candy grams. Wednesday to Friday, you can buy candy, write a note, a dollar, uh, 10 to 2 every day outside the brig. So if you want to give somebody a candy gram, show them your, your undying love or just friendship, uh, you can do that this week. A couple things to know that are happening now weekly throughout the semester. Uh, one is uh, we started a weekly, or the library started a weekly game night. If you're a Settlers fan or a Ticket to Ride fan, they're doing that every Monday at 7. Um, Starting next week, stall talk's wrong, but starting next week, a weekly climb night will happen every Wednesday night. Every Wednesday during the afternoon, the Counseling Center and Student Development is putting together something called Wellness Wednesdays. Uh, there's going to be things like drum circles and crafts and notes and all this other stuff. Uh, today, I think it's a craft day, so come to Sky at 4 p.m. today. And then Thursdays, now here's what you should know, free food Thursdays. Every Thursday, 1.30 to 3.30 in Sky, there's just going to be a snack break. So, so come grab a snack every Thursday afternoon. So know that there's things happening throughout the week just to kind of take, take, a, take a rest from, from, uh, from the, the semester. Uh, one last note is we are going to do Film Fest this year. So Film Fest is not this week, but it is next Saturday, February 20th. If you've never been a part of Film Fest, it is just amazing to see what our classmates come up with and, and create. If you would like to, to uh, submit a film, you need to do that by Friday. And so you're just going to bring a USB uh, with your film on to the CSE by Friday at 4.30. And, and we'll, uh, we'll show them together. This year, it'll be a little bit different. We're going to... Um, do Film Fest in multiple locations. So you'll get a ticket for a certain location and, and you will, you will do Film Fest there. Now, um, tickets are free this year. So we're going to do free tickets this year, but you'll have to get one next week to be able to go to the right location. All right. That's a lot of announcements, but remember love is in the air. Hey, welcome to chapel. We're going to get started, um, with a song. I'm glad Randon's feeling love in the air. That's great, buddy. Good morning, Geneva family. Our theme this morning is our God being a consuming fire. Not not an easy topic, necessarily. But uh, Titus chose Psalm 95 to read, which is a a good choice for the topic. Um, I grew up knowing really well the first half of Psalm 95, but not so much the second half, which we're going to read The first half of Psalm 95 is all about dedicating our lives wholeheartedly to the worship of our God because he is our creator. But then this leads automatically to the second half, which we're going to read, which is a warning. Um, God visited his people in judgment, Israel's forefathers, and they were wandering in the desert. He visited more than once in severe judgment. Um, It seems that even, well, maybe we should even say especially among his chosen people that he chose to redeem— um, there was real wickedness that he, had, that he had to deal with in his holiness. All that said, let's stand and read from Psalm 95 together. 
May God's word speak to us as we read together. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. You may be seated. Amen. If that's tough to read, and maybe it should be, uh, I encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 where the author of Hebrews quotes this psalm and explains how we ought to think of it in light of Christ's perfect work. The idea of God as judge and his holiness, um, it's rather terrifying, isn't it? Uh, Terrifying especially for the hard-hearted, for those who do not believe. But for the believer, I'm convinced this ought to be a precious, precious doctrine. The idea that God will one day completely put down the wicked and the oppressor. And our God will, in his redemption, make all that's wrong completely right. The older I get, and the more I see suffering, the more I experience suffering, the more precious, for me at least, this doctrine becomes. Maybe it's a sign of maturity. I don't know. Um, So our psalm that we're going to experience is Psalm 1a, and it's one we're going to sing Frequently, it's one we've sung frequently in the past. And almost always when we sing it, I tend to focus in my introduction on the believer. Uh, the blessing of being a believer, the, the, the blessing that comes with righteousness, how we need to be obsessed with God's word. I don't know that I've ever mentioned God's bringing down of the wicked here, which is telling, isn't it? It's just as much a part of the psalm as the other stuff we tend to focus on. And it's just as important. As a matter of fact, it's the last word. Um, and after all this is done, Pastor Titus is going to answer all the hard questions that we have. Right, brother? So for now, anyway, I'm going to get out of the way of God's Word, and as we hear it sung, as we see the words, may God's Word shape our hearts. That man is blessed who does not walk as wicked men advised, nor stand where sin nor sit where scorners pose as wise. Instead, he is the one who makes the Lord's love his delight. And in that law he meditates by day and in the night. He's like a deeply planted tree beside a water stream, which in its season bears its fruit, whose leaves stay fresh and green. In all he does, he will succeed, the wicked are not so, but they are like the scattered chaps left by the Oh, 
judgment comes, nor will the sinner stand among assembled righteous ones, because the Lord the righteous loves the path they walk he knows. The wicked walk a different path that to destruction goes. Good morning. Let's say the Apostles' Creed together. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Would you pray with me? Dear Father, we acknowledge today that you are God. You are all-powerful and almighty and in control. You are the one who made us and the one who knows us better than anybody else knows us, even better than we know ourselves. Your scripture says in Psalm 139 that you know when we sit and you know when we rise. You are familiar with all of our ways, and before a word is on your tongue, you know it completely, Lord. So we come to you as the one who truly knows us and the one who still loves us, the one who sees all of our faults, all of our mistakes, knows all of our secrets, and desires to still spend more time with us, Lord. Lord, many of us are burdened, many of us are weary, many of us are tired, Lord. We are broken and we need you. We remember your words in Matthew 11, where you tell us, come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Lord, we lay our burdens down for you. We ask you to take them from us, and we trust that you fulfill your promise and give us rest for our souls. We're about to learn from you and from your word, Father. We pray for Pastor Titus Martin as he prepares to share your word to us. Lord, give us open ears, give us open hearts. Help us to focus on what you would have each of us learn. And now we pray to you as our good Father, who longs to hear from his children. And we pray what you have taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, 
thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Second Thessalonians 1, 5-10 This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Geneva. Good to be back with you. Um, I do appreciate uh, the love is in the air. Um, last time when I was with you, uh, we spoke on God is love, and perhaps I should have switched these two topics, but um, this is what we have. So it's actually, I, I purposely did it this way because we need to be assured of the love of God um, while at the same time recognizing the Bible teaches this characteristic of God that he is a consuming fire. Uh, it's, uh, we're moving from what is maybe the most beloved or referred to characteristic of God to the most uh, unsettling characteristic of God. Uh, God is a consuming fire. Uh, we need to recognize that these two characteristics of God exist simultaneously and eternally within God, not opposed to each other, but are in fact complementary. And really, the more we understand the devastation of the wrath of God, the more we appreciate the expression of the love of God. Uh, this message is primarily, it's for all of us, but it's primarily for those of you who um, maybe have ignored in large part what has gone on here in chapel. Um, and we need to, um, we want you, I want you to really consider this warning, a very real warning from scripture and recognize that God is a consuming fire. Treat him lightly or ignore him or reject him and you will perish. Uh, we've been focused this year on the character of God because what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. I hope that's sinking in and this is an aspect of who God is. So I'm going to read just two verses and I want you to listen to them because Truth is, your life depends on it. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Hebrews 12.29 
for our God is a consuming fire. That's God's word. May he open our eyes to flee the wrath to come. Back in 1962, uh, there were a number of farming towns and communities that were situated beautifully in the valley at the foot of Peru's largest, highest mountain peak. And life was simple and sweet there as people went around uh, about their daily activities. Uh, but at the top of this mountain rested Glacier 511. And in January 1962, a relatively small portion of that glacier, about the size of a skyscraper, weighing 6 million tons, just sort of a little guy, he broke off of that gl glacier and came screaming down the mountain and uh, gaining momentum and debris, uh, that avalanche buried uh, nine towns, small towns, under about 40 feet of ice and snow and debris, and uh, 40,000 lives were lost, 10, 000, tens of thousands of farm animals were killed, and millions of dollars worth of crops were destroyed. It was absolutely devastating for that region. Well, a little later that year, some American mountaineers and geologists were climbing that massive peak in Peru, and part of their purpose on this trip was to uh, examine and inspect Glacier 511. They wanted to see if uh, that avalanche was really just a one-time event, sort of a fluke that would likely never happen again, or if it was just the beginning of a trend. And what they discovered when they got up there was, was absolutely alarming. Uh, the glacier was not only fracturing, but it also was sitting on loose bedrock, and it was obvious to these geologists that the avalanche that happened earlier that year um, might be really small compared to what could happen or what will likely happen in a matter of time. And so they quickly returned to those towns that were resting peacefully in the valley below in the path of this glacier, and they alerted the authorities to this very real possibility. And the newspapers caught word of this warning, and they wrote articles about the impending doom that loomed over this region. But the authorities, instead of following up this warning with you know, further studies and taking measurements, they instead put all their efforts towards um, silencing these geologists. First, they threw them in jail for causing panic, and uh, they promised to release them if they would recant their claims and, and leave the country. And the authorities also issued a warning to the residents in that area that if they found anyone speaking in favor of the geologists' conclusions, they would be charged with disrupting public tranquility. So after a few weeks in jail, uh, while these geologists were pleading to listen, they eventually threw up their hands and they said, okay, we recant our story. And uh, they were released, and they were sent back home. Eventually, the clamor in that community, it died down, and life went back to normal. And they rebuilt much of the city that had been destroyed by that avalanche. And the future started to look a bit brighter. And it looked bright until 1970, eight years later. Uh, there was an earthquake just off the coast of Peru in the Pacific Ocean. 
That earthquake dislodged a portion of that glacier that was about a mile long, half a mile wide, and it bulldozed its way down the mountain, reaching speeds somewhere around 350 miles an hour. And without really warning, any warning, it crashed into the valley, filling it with ice and water and boulders and trees and all sorts of debris. And this time, the two largest cities in that region were buried, costing the lives of 70,000 people. It's a sad story. The warning rang out. The city refused to listen. And in a moment, when they thought life was pretty good, they were buried alive. Well, in John 3.16, in this very beloved verse, it's easy to miss the grave warning here. Jesus rings out a warning to all of humanity using just one word, perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The picture he's presenting to you is this. You and I, we live in this valley of humanity, in the valley of sin and perversion, the valley of the curse, and towering there above us on the massive peaks above is the glacier of God's wrath, which at any moment will come crashing down upon you with such force and fury that will destroy you forever. And so in his grace, Jesus is calling out to you and to me and to all of humanity of this impending danger, this grave danger, this danger of the highest degree, a danger that should make us all shriek with horror. He's warning us. And the question is, how are you going to respond? We run him out of town charging him with... um, disrupting public tranquility? Or will you run and find refuge in him? God is a consuming fire. Flee the wrath to come. Turn from your sin and find refuge in Jesus. Today, I just want to consider this one word, this word perish. And I'm going to ask two questions about this word. What does it mean to perish? And second, should we even talk about perishing? Uh, It is a downer of a subject. Uh, What does it mean to perish, and should we even talk about it? So first, what does it mean? Well, short and direct, it means to burn alive in hell forever. Uh, To be burned up by the wrath of God in hell forever. And Jesus himself describes hell as a place where the fire never goes out and the worm never dies. And, And what that means is that you will simultaneously be burned alive and eaten alive forever. Of course, that doesn't sit very well in our human conscience. It does disrupt our public tranquility. And uh, we do our best to minimize and to sort of reshape the idea of hell so it doesn't scare us so much. We need to temper that idea. And so let me give you a few misconceptions of hell that make hell not so scary. There are a lot of people who think that there, first of all, is no hell and no heaven for that matter. They think that, well, we just die and we cease to exist and so nothing to fear there. Your life is just over. 
Others think that hell is just sort of a big party. Well, if my friends are going to go there, then that's where I want to go. I want to be with my friends. It sounds a lot more enjoyable down there, actually, than just sitting on a cloud. Makes it sound sort of fun. Others think that hell is real, but it's reserved for just the worst of human beings, like Hitler, mass murderers, serial killers, maybe a few others in that category. Sure, some people will go there, but I'm really not in any danger of it. Others believe that heaven exists, but not really hell, eternal hell, uh, because since God is love, he would never send anyone to eternal hell, and so eventually everyone will make it there to heaven someday. Or another variant, which is believed among um, some Christians, is that those who refuse to believe in Jesus, they, they, uh, of course they won't go to heaven, but God will simply annihilate them, meaning they won't burn forever, but they'll just be eliminated. They'll cease to exist. And again, they think, well, a loving God would never eternally punish someone like that. That's ghastly. That's vindictive and cruel and unnecessary. And so instead of eternal torment of hell, God simply annihilates unbelievers. They just cease to exist. And you can understand why people are drawn to these ideas because they essentially eliminate the fear of hell. Yes, I would be scared to burn alive forever, but I wouldn't really be that scared of simply ceasing to exist. In some ways, that might be a relief. And so we're surrounded with these great misunderstandings that have really taken uh, the idea of hell, um, removed all the, the, the fear of hell, and really turned hell in some ways into a big joke. But when Jesus is talking about perishing, there's no joking about it. And it's important for us to formulate our concept of hell, not by looking to popular opinion or what might make us feel a little better, but really to understand what the Bible teaches about it. When Jesus uses the word perish, one simple word, there is the full weight of the whole theology of hell in that one word. It's a huge word, perish. Don't read over it quickly. And I want you to, continue, uh, I want you to consider five features of hell, five features of hell. First, hell is a real place. It's a real place. It's a real place that God created to punish those who rebelled against him, who refused to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus with their life. Hell is not just symbolic of dying. It's not a metaphor, of, it's not a metaphor for life when life gets really hard. It's a real place. It exists right now in a realm that we can't see or reach. A few years ago, or a few years back, uh, after Alyssa and I were married, we went to Chicago for a vacation. We went up the Willis Tower, which used to be called the Sears Tower, second tallest building in the world. And on the top floor of this this Willis Tower, there's a a big glass box that you can step out into, um, and uh, you can look down through the glass in this box, uh, 1,500 feet below you to the street below, and it uh, causes quite a few people, some terror. Well, in many ways, you and I should live as if you could look past your feet into those fires of hell because it is real and it's close and one day the ground will open. The glass will break and you'll fall into those fires never to be released. Hell is real. 
Second, hell is just. There's a lot of people who say that the concept of hell is the epitome of God overreacting to our sin. I mean, uh, we're told that one sin deserves eternal punishment. Really? I mean, would God send me to eternal hell for one little lie or stealing a little piece of gum or something like that? And the reason why we react so, react so strongly against this idea is because when you compare our sins or my sins to other people's sins, when you compare stealing a piece of gum to the annihilation of the Jews or the Chinese during World War II, stealing a piece of gum just sounds silly. But the problem is that we're comparing our sins to the wrong thing. Instead of comparing your sin to the worst possible thing that exists in the world, we're to compare our sin to the holiness of God. And when you see the holiness of God, you see that even the smallest sin is the greatest act of treason, which requires eternal punishment. It's actually a just sentence from a holy God. Hell is just. Third, hell is lacking. Hell is lacking. And what I mean by that is that um, hell is lacking the goodness of God. This is what makes hell, hell. Hell is often described as a separation from God. In 2 Thessalonians 1.9, it says that those who rejected God in this life will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And in Matthew 25, on the last day, God said, Depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire. Depart from me. This is separation from God. But the Bible also teaches that God is the one who created hell. He's the one who actually rules over hell. And he's only present there in hell in order to pour out his great hot wrath forever. And so to be separated from God in hell means to be eternally separated from the goodness of God. You only see the, the, the side of God, the only side of God that you see is, is the side of his wrath. Even if you hate God right now, you should recognize that you benefit from his goodness in so many ways. Uh, God's graciously, graciously given you many good things in life. He's given you an experience of love, not perfect, but an experience of love and some joy, maybe some friends and family. You have the opportunity to learn, opportunity to work. You're, you're sitting in a heated building. Maybe most of you are sitting in a heated building right now. That's God's goodness to you. Any degree of happiness that you've enjoyed is, is actually from the goodness of God. But what happens is that in hell, all of that disappears. God is not gracious or loving there. He will remove every good gift from your life and from your heart. And not only that, but hell lacks every reflection of his good character. So not only will you not experience any love and grace from God, but you won't experience any love and grace from anyone else there in hell. The people there in hell won't exhibit any traits that you would find in the character of God. And so if your most deeply loved um, friend here on earth were next to you there in hell, uh, you won't recognize them because any godly trait that they may have exhibited here on earth will have disappeared. Hell lacks God's goodness entirely. 
So hell is lacking. That's the third. The, the fourth characteristic is hell is painful. Hell is real. Hell is just. Hell is lacking. And hell is painful. The Bible uses the most physically painful images to describe hell. A fire that never goes out. You ever been burned? I'm sure you have. It's painful to be burned alive. Hard way to die, to be burned forever. Agonizing, unimaginable. Or the worm never dies, to be eaten alive forever. This, of course, is symbolic language, so I'm confident there's no worms or fires actually there in hell, but the Bible uses this image to help you understand that in hell you will endure the most intense pain you can imagine. And it will be forever. You'll be forever thirsty, there will be no water. Forever starving, there will be no food. Lonely, there will be no one to comfort you, to come alongside of you. You will forever be afraid, crippled by fear. You will be in this perpetual state of the deepest depression and hopelessness. You'll be grieving those moments that you once treasured that are now forever lost. And you will live every day with regret there in hell because you had the opportunity to believe. And you wouldn't. I want you to take all the worst days of your life here on earth, some pretty bad days, I'm sure. I want you to concentrate all those days into just one short minute. That'd be an awful minute to live through. Well, in hell, that minute would feel like a vacation. I know that a lot of you have been very through some very, very hard things and and it's easy to describe your life as a living hell. Uh, I recognize that they may be heavy experiences, but thank God it's not hell. Your life right now would feel like an all-inclusive vacation compared to hell. Thank God it's not hell. Instead, what you need to do is recognize those pains that you endure each day. Recognize that they're like those warnings, like the little avalanche before the big one. To recognize that this is just a taste to come if you walk away from God. And so don't let those little moments go to waste. It's a reminder that something bigger looms ahead. Hell is painful. And then the last characteristic of hell is that it's eternal. Everyone in hell wants to end the misery if they could, but they can't. You can't escape it. And the reason why it has to be eternal is because a sin against an eternal being requires an eternal punishment. That's justice. And therefore, it will never end. And that perhaps is the deepest agony of hell. It will never end. There's no hope of anything ever getting better. You know, in your days, in your darkest moments today, you can think of days to come that you're looking forward to. Those days are gone. The fire will never go out. The worm never dies. Hell is eternal. Hell is real. Hell is just. 
Hell is lacking. Hell is painful. And hell is eternal. And just the thought of being banished into those fires should fill you with dread and fear. And with one little word, Jesus calls out to you a warning. Don't perish. He's shaking you from this illusion of safety that we all live in. We all want to live in this illusion of safety. Ignore the trials and troubles and, and, and the, the looming doom that, that is ahead of us. He's pointing us to the towering peaks above of the impending glacier of God's holy white wrath that will come burning down the mountain to bury you. He says, flee. Flee the wrath. Well, this leads us to the second question then. Should we even teach on this concept of perishing? Should we bring it up at all? Hell and judgment has fallen out of favor in our day, and uh, too oftentimes parents don't want to punish their kids. Uh, our, our judicial penalties for crimes are becoming less and less. Uh, we don't want to tell anyone that they're wrong. Um, churches are teaching less and less on this concept of judgment and sin and hell because, you know, they're downers. It's hard. It's heavy. Even in the ways we present the gospel, we can leave out the idea of God's judgment and hell altogether, and we can talk about how God will fulfill you and heal you and transform you and satisfy you and fix you, all of which are true. But to leave out this unpopular, this unpopular idea that our sins condemn us and that we need saved from the impending wrath of God, it's easy to leave it out. It's depressing. Well, it'd be easier to ignore if the Bible ignored it. But the Bible talks an awful lot about judgment in hell. It's not a concept that we find, uh, you know, in a few verses scattered, obscure verses, but it saturates, saturates the pages of Scripture. Ted Donnelly, great preacher, said that the Bible refers to the wrath of God more than it does actually to the love of God. Jesus himself, who is the embodiment of divine love, Love in the flesh. He spoke a lot about hell, warning us to flee the wrath to come. And in, then in the last chapters of the book of Revelation, we're left with this grim image of the lake of fire, burning of sulfur, and everyone who didn't trust in Jesus would be thrown in that fiery lake to burn forever. Why is hell so integral to the Bible? Well, it's because it's integral to the story. The Bible is the story about Jesus who comes to save us. And if you don't understand what he saves you from, then you won't see the urgency of running to him. If you don't understand hell, you won't see the point of Jesus. He's an unnecessary addition. Fear is a great motivator. Uh, if you know that a, a glacier could break at any time and bury you alive, it'll motivate you to move out. You have fire alarms in your homes or in your dorm rooms because you want to know if a fire is coming so that you can escape. Uh, we go to doctors so that they can accurately diagnose us so that if he finds cancer or anything else, a terminal disease, he can do his best to cut it out, save our lives. Fear is a great motivator. God uses it to wake us up. So that when you realize how close you really are to eternal torment, it will motivate you to reach out with all your might 
reach out for the hand of your Savior. This is what motivated Martin Luther to find his hope in his Savior. It, it was the fear of, um, it was fear that changed his career path from law school to the ministry. Um, he was traveling home from law school, uh, and he was got he was caught in a lightning storm, and he was so struck with fear. Uh, he was so concerned of the judgment of God that he he vowed to become a priest, and he did. But as a priest, he lived in constant fear, afraid he hadn't done enough to earn his way to heaven. And, and finally, he discovered the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and that's when he finally found rest. It was fear that wouldn't let him rest until he rested in Jesus. John Newton, the writer of the great hymn Amazing Grace, was a slave ship captain, and one night his ship was caught in the storm, and as his ship began to sink, he finally called out to God. His boat managed to drift safely, drift to safety, and he became a Christian. Fear is a powerful motivator. And if I knew that you were living in a valley and, and a glacier was at its tipping point and in a moment you could be buried, you know, what kind of friend would I be if I pretended like everything was just fine? Yeah, carry on. Keep going. Do what you're doing. You'll be fine. That is no friend. What kind of friend would I be if I never warned you and you died? That's not friendship. It is unsettling. I get it. It disrupts public tranquility. It disrupts your illusion of safety. And in our country, it's quickly becoming hate speech. But Jesus so loved the world that he rang out this warning bell 2,000 years ago, and he is still ringing it today. Flee the wrath to come. Turn away from your sin. Find refuge in Jesus. Or you'll perish. Don't regret this day forever that you chose to play a video game instead of throwing yourself at the mercy of Jesus. Don't give your life to enjoying a few fleeting moments of sin just to fall into eternal agony and torment forever. But rather give it all up. You follow Jesus and you have pleasures at the right hand of God. Forever. Heed the warning. And those of you who do know Jesus, I want you to feel the relief that you have. That punishment, the agony, was endured by Jesus there on the cross. The fullness of eternal hell was poured out on Jesus. He experienced the full agony of eternal hell millions of times over. So that not only would you be set free from hell, but you would gain heaven and eternal pleasures at the right hand of God. And so to you, I say, don't be afraid. God is with you and he will keep you. You have eternal life. Hold on to that promise and follow after Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish.
but have eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we ask you to make the reality of eternity very real to us. Let the thought of hell make us cringe in horror. Let the idea of agony, uh, enduring such agony forever, make our hearts and our souls melt. And that, let that shake us from our illusion of safety and control, a bright future. And let us lay it all down and find your grace at the cross. Let the fear of hell start us on this journey to find our joy and delight in you. And that forever we would give you thanks and praise your name. All because of your grace. It's through Jesus that we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All you nations, extol him, extol him, all you peoples for grace.